Hello friends, I am back after this hiatus and little remodeling job on the vault. Uncertainty and disruption came from all quarters this last month, but I want to let you know that as of now, the show is back and will be updating regularly and adding very short episodes on current events that look at global happenings of interest to historically-minded listeners. A Patreon system will also be launching soon, with all kinds of bonuses to supporters of The Vault. Keep a lookout on Facebook, and of course, on ColdWarVault.com. Now, on with the show. Surrounded by steel and cold, the former station chief for the KGB in London, a career intelligence officer and a skilled spy, found himself in the acutely claustrophobic position of being folded into a compartment in the floor of a specially modified Land Rover, creeping through checkpoints in the last kilometers before the Soviet-Finnish border. The gadget men of MI6 the British Foreign Intelligence Service had rerouted the Land Rover's drivetrain, so the hump in the floor of the vehicle was empty and sufficient for stowing away a KGB colonel. Well, now certainly a former KGB colonel. This was most definitely an undignified end to his career in intelligence, but he thought it was better than a bullet in the back of the neck. With the muffled sound from outside and the motion of the vehicle, he could tell that they had passed through several checkpoints without any trouble. Then, at Soviet customs at the border, the engine stopped, and he could hear the guard dogs outside. Minutes went by. Claustrophobia crept over him. How had it come to this? In the spring of 1985, Oleg Gordievsky found himself at the pinnacle of his career. He had been promoted to Resident, the station chief of the KGB in London. This was a welcome development, not just a career advancement, but it also meant that his bosses at the KGB had no idea that he had been working for the British for 11 years. Oleg Gordievsky was a double agent. And then, for reasons that are still in question today, Gordievsky received a cable on Friday, May 17, 1985, recalling him to Moscow. It was urgent. He later said that the message sent a cold fear down his back because he knew that it was a death sentence. Despite the hunch, his MI6 case officer assured him that they'd picked up nothing that might indicate anything had gone wrong. So he gambled on MI6 and flew to Moscow. But MI6 had been wrong. Today, Gordievsky's exposure is often attributed to the CIA double agent Aldrich Ames. But a close analysis of the timeline leaves this far from a certainty, and certainly a story for another day. 
What was certain was that the KGB was on to him. The third lock on the door to his Moscow apartment had been locked, though he never used it because he'd lost the key. His apartment had clearly been searched. A few days later, Gordievsky found himself the unwilling guest in a KGB dacha, half-dressed and tied to a chair after having been served sandwiches and drugged Armenian brandy. He didn't confess, though his boss at the KGB, Viktor Grushko, informed him that they knew all about his years of spying. Gordievsky was released, back to a menial job at the KGB, in the hope, he surmised, that he would be caught doing something stupid, like trying to communicate with the British. Before he left London, his case officer had given him a novel. Concealed in the front cover of the book was an emergency escape plan. He cut open the binding and found the plan. At a specific day and time, he was to stand on a specific Moscow street corner and look for a, quote, British-looking man who would be eating something. On the second try, a man eating a candy bar and carrying a distinctly British Harrods department store bag passed by. That was the signal. On the day specified in the escape plan, Gordievsky began to walk an elaborate path at right angles, putting himself into the blind spots of the surveillance that might have been, or most certainly was, following him. With enough twists and turns, he arrived at a train station, where he continued his route toward the Finnish border, ten hours away. Then, by bus and taxi, and presumably a walk along the roadside, he hid himself in a patch of grass at the forest's edge. Eventually, a Land Rover stopped with a man, two women, and a baby. He recognized the man as the agent with the candy bar in the Harrods bag. The women were the wives of British diplomats stationed in Moscow who were traveling under the story that they were on their way to Finland for medical treatment. Like a masterful stage magician, Gordievsky was loaded into the hidden compartment and the final leg of his magnificent escape began. Which brought him to that customs checkpoint and the increasingly suspicious German shepherds sniffing the car. As the driver navigated the bureaucracy inside the customs office, the women carried on a casual conversation with one of the guards, who didn't seem to notice or care that one of the women was feeding the dogs from her supply of snacks. To further take control of the situation, the other woman decided to change her baby's diaper, confusing the dogs and disgusting the guards. With the customs checks cleared, the engine revved again, and they drove on. In a few minutes, music began to fill the car. It was Finlandia by Sibelius. The signal that Oleg Gordievsky had escaped, thanks to perhaps the most cinematic intelligence exfiltration of the entire Cold War. Now, if you've heard the story of Oleg Gordievsky before, 
it's likely that you've heard it differently. It's rarely been told the same way twice, and the actuality of those details that make it so cinematic will likely be lost to history. Sometimes the car is a Ford, or a Saab, and Gordaevsky is hidden in the trunk. The dogs are distracted variously by a meat sandwich or Tato's cheese and onion chips. Sometimes, though not always, in combination with the dirty diaper. I'm just making clear that I understand that the details differ from telling to telling, sometimes due to flawed memories or hearsay, and sometimes, as we'll see later, by design, to throw the curious off the scent of what, for our purposes, might be called the secrets of the clandestine magician. Whatever version of the story you choose, whatever set of details, it is the story of a remarkable success of secret signals, misdirection, concealment, and a well-executed performance of practical stage magic. 1. MKUltra and Mulholland's Magic Manual In 1953, the many new, strange CIA programs that would become MKUltra were getting off the ground under the leadership of Dr. Sidney Gottlieb. If you haven't listened to the recent episodes on the CIA's antics, I urge you to do that, because there isn't any easy way to sufficiently explain every facet of eccentric that is entailed in any reference to Sidney Gottlieb and MKUltra. In short, the CIA was created in 1947 and found itself immediately on the front lines of the Cold War with the dual mission of preventing a foreign attack on the United States and holding back the communist threat to Europe and the non-aligned nations. As part of this, the CIA formed a special unit in 1951 called the Technical Services Staff, the TSS. This would later become the Office of Technical Service, the OTS. This was, and is, the group responsible for the gadgets and disguises that define Hollywood spies. Except, of course, it's all real. Dr. Sidney Gottlieb found himself at the head of the chemical division of that organization, where he gained a reputation for ingenious, if somewhat sinister, implementations of his chemical knowledge. He took on the nicknames The Black Sorcerer and The Dirty Trickster, among others. The chemical division's investigations expanded into the 149-part umbrella program known as MKUltra. And of course, when your project involves surreptitious delivery of hallucinogens to unsuspecting human subjects, part of that job is developing the means to do the delivery. The boundary between the technical gadgetry of the TSS and the chemical experimentation of MKUltra was blurred in this way. After MKUltra effectively closed up shop in 1963, Sidney Gottlieb took over the project to develop other interesting high-tech gadgetry for the CIA. But in 1951, 
As the technical services staff began its mission, the chemical division under Sidney Gottlieb wasn't yet involved with the chemistry of hallucinogens. It was devoted to the formulation of secret inks that would allow the CIA's spies to pass hidden messages. In the interest of transporting the inks covertly, Gottlieb's labs developed ways to turn the inks into powders and eventually into pills that would be indistinguishable from aspirin in an average medicine cabinet. But, of course, this wasn't all. The TSS worked in document forging, the development of concealments for clandestine electronics, and a range of apparatus. Most famously, these dirty tricks were all on display during the CIA's effort to assassinate, or at least discredit, the Cuban leader Fidel Castro. Straight out of Sidney Gottlieb's wildest dreams came Operation Mongoose. A subject deserving of its own episode, absolutely. But here, I will offer a survey. Soak Fidel's favorite cigars in LSD. Dose his boots with thallium salts to make his beard fall out or kill him, whichever came first or last. Poison his favorite food, ice cream. Plant a beautiful seashell at his favorite beach, which would then explode. Poison scuba gear with tuberculosis and, for good measure, dust his wetsuit with Madura foot a really, frankly, disgusting skin disease, a papermate pen with a secret needle inside that would deliver a lethal toxin, and, in keeping with the stage magic theme of this episode, though really just because I like to tell the story, the beautiful assistant as a distraction. A former romantic interest was recruited by the CIA to slip him botulism pills in the hotel room, Fidel laid down on the bed and said to his beautiful ex-lover, Did you come here to kill me? She said, Yes. He said, Good. That's good. Are you working for the CIA? Playing it cool, she said, Not really. I work for myself. Then he pulled out his forty-five and gave it to her. He said, You can't kill me. Nobody can kill me. He smiled and chewed on his cigar. He grabbed the would-be assassin. They made love. He got dressed. He left. Needless to say, for one reason or another, all of these efforts failed. Even before Operation Mongoose, Sidney Gottlieb recognized the fact that no matter how elaborate or advanced the poisons or methods of administering them might be, all of the CIA's best efforts were useless if the field agents failed to close the deal. So, how do you train intelligence agents to slip poison, switch out cigars, abscond with secret documents, and the like? Well, you hire a magician, of course. John Mulholland was born in 1898, and by the time Sidney Gottlieb approached him in 1953, he was, if not exactly famous, certainly among the most important professional magicians of the 20th century. He was a performer, true, but never attained the cultural notoriety of his contemporary and friend, Harry Houdini. Nevertheless, he was the editor of The Sphinx, 
the professional magician's trade journal for more than two decades, and very well-known and respected in professional circles. Most importantly, John Mulholland's specialty was close-up magic. It was exactly what would be most useful in the CIA's efforts to train agents in the use of sleight of hand to poison or purloin. And so, as Subproject 4, one of the original subprojects of MKUltra, John Mulholland was paid $5,500, roughly $50,000 today, to produce a manual for the use of magic in the service of secret intelligence operations. The project was extended and renewed in subprojects 15 and 19, and a second manual was commissioned for $1,800 with subproject 34. That much shorter project was to describe magicians' techniques for the covert communication of information. The manuals were titled Some Operational Applications of the Art of Deception and Recognition Signals. Recognition signals is a study of methods of secretly signaling to someone who knows what they're looking for by a special shoelace pattern or a flower in the lapel or, as we've already seen, a candy bar and a shopping bag. In 1973, the director of the CIA, Richard Helms, and the retiring Sidney Gottlieb agreed to destroy all record of the MKUltra program. As I've described in previous episodes, what we know about MKUltra today is inferred in large part from accounting documents that escaped the purge by hiding out in a separate archive. During congressional investigations of MKUltra in 1975, the existence of Mulholland's work was revealed, at least to those with access to the documents. Freedom of Information Act requests in 1977 led to more investigations, but compared to the dramatic revelations of human LSD experimentation, Subproject 4, a manual on magic, got no attention at all. It became the stuff of legend in the CIA, with no evidence that the manuals had ever actually been written. Then, in 2007, the professional descendant of Sidney Gottlieb himself made a discovery. Robert Wallace, the one-time director of the Office of Technical Services, successor to the TSS, was digging through a CIA archive for something unrelated. And he discovered references to Mulholland's work that hadn't been found by Richard Helms in the destruction of 1973 or by two subsequent government investigations. Robert Wallace followed the trail and found one copy each of Mulholland's Some Operational Applications and Recognition Signals. In the interest of history, and because Robert Wallace is himself an amateur magician and magical enthusiast, he teamed with the intelligence historian Keith Melton and set about publishing Mulholland's legendary magic manuals. 2. Sidney's Book of Practical Magic How do a magician's techniques apply to the wider world of spycraft? Well, nothing could fit better with Sidney Gottlieb's mission of the surreptitious drugging of unsuspecting human subjects 
been John Mulholland's professional specialty, up-close sleight of hand. And so Mulholland set out to write an instruction manual on the use of a magician's sleight of hand tricks in the service of delivering, well, let's just say this. After the introduction to Mulholland's manual, parts two, three, and four deal with the handling of tablets, powders, and liquids, respectively. Though Mulholland missed the obvious opportunity to title these pills, powders, and potions. The chapters offer practical advice on all kinds of ways to deal with all three. Mulholland was definitely Gottlieb's kind of magician. Mulholland instructs his CIA acolytes to get a pack of paper matches, take the paper matches, open the cover, tear off one match, then close the cover, then light the match and blow it out. In doing this, you will have discovered something about yourself. Not so much in a zenful way, but rather that when this is done naturally, as a practiced smoker might, it's done entirely without using the third or little fingers of each hand. Mulholland describes a series of actions that would allow a magician or an agent to use the spare fingers to release a small pill from the matchbook completely out of view of both the performer and the spectator. And from here, Mulholland opens his box of tricks to the CIA. In the case of powders, some kind of inconspicuous container would be needed. And for John Mulholland, that didn't need to be anything more than a wooden pencil. He wrote, common objects are not apt to be suspected, especially if the object is not new. And so it would be a used wooden pencil. For one to 15 grains of powder, pull the eraser out of the pencil and create a cavity there. Reinsert the eraser and you have an undetectable vessel for your mystery material. If you need more space, repeat the removal of the eraser, then drill down into the pencil, creating an even deeper cavity. Mulholland advises the use of a drill press. If you have more powder than that to deliver, an advanced elementary school arts and crafts project is described in which the real sharpened end and the real eraser end of the pencil are glued onto a completely hollow pencil made out of craft paper. Liquids, more difficult still to contain and deploy, could fill small ampules or tubes hidden in matchbooks or cigarette packs. Mulholland offers several suggestions on the implementation of a few clever devices for squirting liquid, probably into drinks, when the subject is distracted. In one uncharacteristically awkward suggestion, a soft bladder hidden in a man's wallet might be repeatedly squeezed to fully empty the secret contents. This, Mulholland admits, might take longer than some situations permit. Beyond pills, powders, and potions, the manual offers advice on the surreptitious removal of objects, special actions of deception for women, surreptitious removal of objects by women, and finally, working as a team, an invaluable set of lessons for CIA operatives, and particularly useful in our last story of exfiltration. Knowing that Sidney Gottlieb was engaged in the secret dosing of unsuspecting human subjects throughout the 1950s, 
I have to wonder how many of Mulholland's tricks made it into the bars of Greenwich Village and San Francisco, or if Sidney developed his own version of the hollow pencil. Though his tricks might be considered a little unethical, he certainly was a practicing magician. 3. Managing the Stage More than these little acts of sleight of hand, which Mulholland was known for, and which he gave to the CIA in his magic manual, there are bigger connections between the world of magic and the clandestine actions of field agents that clearly appealed to Sidney Gottlieb and sparked his interest in employing a magician. These connections, in planning and in practice, can be seen in all kinds of intelligence operations during the Cold War. As small as the tricks with matchbooks and hollow pencils might seem, the illusion couldn't work without a strong observational command of the subject and the subject's attention. The positioning of the mechanisms and the ability to distract the subject at the critical moment. Taken together, the magician might call this stage management and misdirection. John Mulholland advised that just as important as the spy's clever devices was the ability to manage the environment the way that a magician manages a stage performance. What this means, in effect, is that plausible reasons are substituted for reality to conceal the true purpose of a gesture or action or distraction. And for the magician, on the stage, the end goal is the believable execution of a trick. But for the agents reading the advice in his manuals, the believable execution of the trick is just the means to divert attention from the clandestine act. The trick is just a reason for the audience to believe their eyes instead of their common sense. During the late 1950s, the senior CIA officer in Czechoslovakia, Haviland Smith, developed new operational methods that exploited a mastery of real-world stage management. In particular, the orthogonal technique. Sometimes, I suppose, being a spy requires wearing a tuxedo under your wetsuit, but usually, it just requires you to walk at right angles. What Haviland Smith discovered was that evading tailing surveillance only required acting in the moments immediately after he had turned a corner and the sightline was blocked. This was called being in the gap. It seemed simple, but it made all the difference. Managing sightlines was, of course, a magician's trick. It was effective stage management. Smith became so confident in his orthogonal approach to the management of sightlines, he set up a demonstration for the head of the East European Division at the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C. As his boss and a few other observers sat in the lobby of the hotel, scanning the room with their spy's eyes for the start of the demonstration, another agent made a right-hand turn into the hotel. He was carrying the object of the demonstration, a small package. Haviland Smith was posing as the agent under surveillance, standing just inside the door at a bank of payphones. As the other agent, Ron Estes, got close, he shifted his raincoat from one hand to the other. It had been concealing a small package, which he handed off to Haviland Smith 
as he made a show of shaking out his raincoat. Smith moved on, down a stairway, and the observing agents started to ask exactly when the demonstration of this technique was going to begin. It was impromptu stage management and misdirection by MI6 that served Oleg Gordievsky so well in his escape from the Soviet Union to Finland, and then on to Britain in 1985. At the critical moment, one of the occupants of the vehicle he had been stashed in decided to distract, to misdirect the dogs and the guards with snacks, conversation, and even the smell of a dirty diaper. The guards never knew they were being fooled because the stage had been set and was perfectly managed for the show. 4. The Art of Disguise Another patch of shared territory between the stage magician and the secret agent is something I'm sure you'll think is obvious, but it's essential nonetheless. It's the ability to conceal your actual identity, and, when it's necessary, to throw your adversaries or your audience off the trail by making them think that one person is someone else. A twin, a double, or an identical beautiful assistant, it's used consistently in clandestine tradecraft. This is called the art of disguise and identity transfer. In the world of stage magic, a few methods of managing identity are common. Doubles, identical twins, and full disguises. There are more, I'm sure, but those remain magicians' secrets. A good general rule for stage magic, and for the CIA, as it turns out, is that the shorter the time the magician, or the agent, is subject to observation, the less elaborate a disguise has to be. The less elaborate disguises are called light disguise, and they might be a wig, glasses, false moles, facial hair, dental appliances, or even just articles of clothing. But there is sometimes the necessity for heavier disguise. There is a lot of legend and a lot of misdirection in the world of disguise and the CIA. And both of those come in large part from the married couple of Tony and Jana Mendez. Tony Mendez, who died last year, was a graphic artist recruited by the CIA who became an officer in various regions for 25 years. His exploits, whether real, imagined, or planted intentionally for misdirection decades after the real events, are detailed in four memoirs and a Hollywood film. Two of those memoirs were written with his wife, Jana, who, among other roles in the CIA, became Chief of Disguise in 1991. Both were involved in the planning and design of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., and served on its board of directors. And they have been conspicuously chatty about their missions and methods in the years since their retirement. I always watch their interviews with a slight squint of incredulity. Because, you see, the pieces don't always align. And I really do think that's by design, more often than not. A continued effort at misdirection and concealment of the magician's secrets. 
John Chambers was a famous Hollywood makeup artist. He had worked on a few well-known films through the 1950s and 1960s, and really made a name for himself with the Planet of the Apes films and the television series. He was the inventor of the innovative, articulated ape masks, and even won an Academy Award for that effort. It is said, and I say this in a very passive way, because it is written and said, but not really substantiated, that he worked with the CIA on a new generation of high-tech masks that would be so realistic that they could stand up to scrutiny for hours and affect ethnic and gender change. A mask from Planet of the Apes can even be found in the International Spy Museum, donated from the private collection of Tony Mendez. When considering his masterpiece was an Academy Award-winning primate face that still barely looks better than two latex flaps slapping together, this strains belief. Or at least makes you wonder what incredible secrets he was holding back from the movie-going public. But of course, this particular story of disguise goes two ways. And both land with Tony and Jana Mendez. The first is Argo. Whether John Chambers really did create the perfect articulated mask, we can't quite be sure. But he absolutely did work for the CIA. That's a stone-cold fact. What came to be known as the Canadian Caper was, in short, a scheme hatched by Tony Mendez to extract six Americans from the tumult of the 1979 Iranian Revolution. The story is fantastic and cinematic and modestly well-outlined in Ben Affleck's Argo, in which Ben himself plays Tony. It's too big to detail here, but in general, it involved the ruse of a Hollywood scouting party looking for locations in Iran to film a new science fiction film called Argo. The six Americans were eventually extracted successfully. They weren't smuggled out. They just walked out, using what I've called here light disguise. They were transformed from drab embassy personnel into a very Hollywood-looking crew. Remember, this is 1980. As the CIA describes it, quote, tight pants, silk shirts unbuttoned down the front with chest hair cradling a gold chain and medallion for one man. And that was all it took to walk right through the Tehran airport to freedom. But Tony Mendez hadn't used John Chambers for costumes, as you might think. He had used him for his connections in Hollywood. Chambers set up the stateside production studio with business cards and letterhead and office space and three phone lines. Two were constantly ringing once word hit the street that a new production company had opened. The third was a private line for the CIA. But the story of the Canadian caper isn't a story of sleight of hand, or magic, or even costumes. It's really a story of magnificent stage management, to the point of constructing an entirely believable false reality. But it's a little too big to go into here, so perhaps another time. But what about that magnificent new generation of articulated masks John Chambers had been working on in the 1970s? Dr. Zayas Plus. As odd as it sounds, we do have this particular piece of CIA lore that suggests there may have been something to it. I never said it wasn't true, 
just that assertions and associations aren't evidence. Sometime in 1991, Jana Mendez was part of a group from the CIA that was to brief then-President George H.W. Bush on new methods and technologies. This particular new mask technology was remarkable enough that the director of the CIA asked her to make a mask for the occasion. It happened to be based on the face of someone else in her department who was leaving. And so it was what you might call a plausible face. On the morning of the White House meeting, Mendez went to DCI William Webster's house to prepare. When she went inside, the dog apparently disliked her, barking and going crazy. She slipped into the bathroom and applied the new face. When she came out, the dog loved her. An anecdote from Jana Mendez herself speaking to the efficacy of the masked tech in canine affairs and relations. Eventually, she found herself in the Oval Office with the others, National Security Advisor Brent Scowcroft, his deputy Robert Gates, Chief of Staff John Sununu, Director of the CIA Webster, and of course, the President, who had himself once been the head of the CIA. She began by discussing old disguise technology and showed Bush pictures of himself in various costumes. Then she said, I'm going to show you now the latest in disguise. Bush asked where it was. Jana Mendez said, I'm wearing it. When she started to take it off, Bush told her excitedly to stop. He stood and came around from his desk so that he could make a circle around her and inspect it. He went back to his chair and gave her the nod. She peeled off her face, and they were amazed. According to Jana Mendez's telling, John Sununu, who had been sitting next to her for the briefing, nearly fell out of his chair. Clearly, the CIA was working with something more than monkey masks. 5. Disappearing People I will leave you with a story that brings together so many of the magician's tricks in one major intelligence operation. It's a disguise-based exfiltration of a high-level KGB intelligence officer and his family sometime in 1989 or 1990. In its telling by Tony and Jana Mendez, even the year is obfuscated, though it is likely 1990. The name of the KGB officer is given as Peter Leonov, but that's also a very light disguise. His CIA name had been Zephyr, but on his return to Moscow, the CIA renamed the asset Orb. Trust that neither of those things are real either. But for our purposes, like an audience that has paid good money to be thoroughly tricked, we will play along and call this the last ride of Major Peter Leonov and the exfiltration of Orb. During the dying light of the Soviet Union, Peter Leonov worked in the Science and Technology Directorate of the KGB and was in charge of technical security for the worldwide Soviet encrypted communications network. He had worked for the KGB for 17 years and moved up the ranks, 
from fieldwork to management in Moscow by the 1980s. He was a KGB major at the relatively young age of 38. Peter Leonov was also a mole who had been working for the CIA for years. His operational name was Orb. But in 1989, the CIA's assets in Moscow were suddenly and inexplicably being rolled up by state security. Though the CIA didn't know it yet, this was due to the double-agent antics of Aldrich Ames and Robert Hansen. But what was clear on the ground, especially to Peter Leonov, was that he had to find a way out of the Soviet Union with his wife, Lara, and their son, Dmitry, as soon as possible. To do it, he would need the help of the CIA. And in exchange for that help, he just needed to do one last job. The stage for Leonov's final act was the Kremlin Palace of Congresses, the massive and modern performance space built under Nikita Khrushchev to hold the party congresses, the biggest performances in all of the Soviet world. On the particular night in question, the Bolshoi Ballet took the stage while the public spaces swirled with CIA operatives and KGB surveillance, all there to execute a meticulously rehearsed plan that centered on Major Peter Leonov and his wife in attendance at the Bolshoi's performance and the guests of honor at the CIA's secret sideshow. It was exactly what Mulholland might have counseled 35 years earlier, that a magician hides the smaller motion inside the larger motion, the smaller performance inside the larger performance. In a series of identity swaps between couples, Orb and his wife were replaced by a couple from the CIA who had been posing as tourists. As the CIA couple returned to Leonov's seats after the intermission, the real Peter and Lara Leonov had left the Palace of Congresses disguised as catering workers. They had been spirited away to meet with a technical agent, described by Tony Mendez as the ninja, who Peter had to lead through the sewers under the Kremlin in order to install a hyper-listening device on the communications network to spy on unencrypted traffic from the Kremlin's communications center. After the ballet, the stand-ins got their coats, actually the coats of the now-missing Leonov couple, and adjusted their hats and hair in the wall of mirrors. The man knelt down and seemed to brush his shoe with a handkerchief. What was hidden in the flourish was a small ampule of liquid, which he broke open and spread on the cloth. Mulholland would have been very pleased indeed. The liquid was a solution to dissolve a pesky photoreactive chemical that the KGB had been using to mark suspected spies for tracking. The CIA called it spy dust. Free from the tracking powder and looking very much the part of Major and Mrs. Leonov, the two went out into the night, passing through the typically chaotic Soviet crowd at the end of the performance. They were picked up by their KGB surveillance, who, as a matter of tradecraft, didn't follow faces, they followed profiles. They followed easy-to-spot handles, and so they followed these two doppelgangers. Orb, it turned out, had been right to trigger his escape. On the Troitsky Bridge, 
out of the Kremlin, among the crowd, the CIA couple was grabbed by their KGB tails and began to be pulled away. But under a streetlight, the man who they thought was Orb stopped and produced his US diplomatic ID card. This left the KGB agents confused, embarrassed, and only very slightly apologetic. Somewhere, they had lost the Major and his wife. They would have to retrace their steps. Back underground, Orb and the Ninja found Lara hiding at the appointed entrance to the Moscow sewers. Through doubles, misdirection, and a masterful stage direction, KGB surveillance had completely lost their charges. The couple's son, Dmitri, was retrieved from a trusted friend, and the three vanished into the care of the CIA. They moved on to what Tony Mendez only calls a Baltic capital. If anything that our CIA friend has said is true, that capital must have been Vilnius in Lithuania, the first of the Soviet republics to declare independence in March 1990. In that capital, Orb was instructed to pick up a package at a dead drop in a park. They were given new travel documents, money, and all of the arrangements necessary for their trip. Whoever Orb might have been, and whatever came of him, is hidden somewhere in the CIA. Probably. It's a well-kept secret, or it's a secret kept because the truth doesn't even exist anymore. As we've talked about, the entire record of MKUltra, a separate set of secrets entirely, was meant to have been destroyed in 1973. It was only by an oversight that we know anything about it at all. By an even more remote circumstance, John Mulholland's magic manuals are the only products that remain of all of the work produced under MKUltra for a decade. And that is an irony worth enjoying. The only secret document from MKUltra to see the light of day is the product of a preeminent magician working under the magician's oath, which states in part, I should say, as a magician, I promise never to reveal the secret of any illusion to a non-magician, unless that one swears to uphold the magician's oath in turn. I think something very similar could be said for the CIA in general. Their illusions and their secrets fascinate and confound us, even today. And they frustrate. Because somewhere, through the smoke and mirrors of the story of Major Peter Leonov, or Oleg Gordievsky, or any legend that the CIA chooses to tell, you know there's a truth just out of reach, kept by its own magician's oath. So, in Lithuania, in 1990, by ferry, the Leonovs made their way out of the dissolving Soviet Union into the West and into the mists of history simply vanished. And that was a very good magician's trick, indeed. Thank you for listening to The Vault. This episode was written, researched, and produced by DJ Kinney, and that's me. 
Have a look at the website for show notes on this episode, including some images and links to books I've mentioned. If you like the show, I'll be launching Patreon subscription tiers very soon, so save your bottle caps. And please, please review The Vault anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. As John Mulholland might have said, abracadabra and good night. <laughs>